Here's Anne Graham Lotz. Are you concerned about the brokenness amongst God's people? The disintegration in the church has become a disgrace. Do you care? Are you concerned? This week on Living in the Light, Bible teacher Anne Graham Lotz shares her deep concerns for our need of a changed heart, our need for revival. Her message today is from Nehemiah chapter 1. Here's Anne. We need change. Not the kind of change perhaps we hear about on TV and read in the newspapers. We need a change of the human heart. We need revival. What can be done to bring about revival? You know, if revival is an invasion from heaven, if revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and so that people and a community and a country are saturated in the Holy Spirit with that resulting conscious awareness of God and conviction of sin to the point they would confess their sin and that they would be converted, filled with the Holy Spirit so that lives are changed and society is changed. Is there anything you can do to bring it about? If God just pours it out, do we sit around and just pray God pour it out or is there actually something we can do to work for revival? There are many people who think there is nothing you can do to work for revival and so they sit around and have their holy huddles and they pray and do nothing. But you know, the first real revival in American history was called the First Great Awakening. It took place in 1730 and it impacted the colonies and it prepared the heart and the mind and the soul of the colonies to become a nation, which she did 40 years later. You know, I would love one day, and one day I plan on this, to read history from God's point of view. I have a precious friend who calls history his story. And I would love to see it from God's point of view because I believe it would be very different from what our children are studying in schools and their textbooks. And I believe if God were writing American history, he would have more emphasis in our studies on the revivals that took place. The one in New England in the 1730s that affected our founding fathers who then wrote our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, our Bill of Rights. All of that was rooted in that first Great Awakening. The second Great Awakening was in the 1780s that took place in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky as the pioneers went out west. So that as they went out west, they went out with the revival fires just filling their hearts and our nation was thus born with faith in God. But this first Great Awakening took place in 1730 and the primary person God used to bring about that revival and to maintain that revival was a man named George Whitfield. The first time George Whitfield preached it was to a small crowd of about 300. The next time he preached was to a crowd of a thousand. The next time, 2,000, then 3,000, then 5,000, then 20,000, and then 30,000 people were coming to hear George Whitfield. And this is when the entire population of New England was only 250,000. And in one meeting, he was drawing 30,000 people to come here and preach. Thousands of people were converted. Amongst his crowd were Benjamin Franklin, Lord Chesterfield, other prominent Americans of that particular day and time. And George Whitfield preached for 31 years. God used him to not only bring the revival, but to maintain the revival for 31 years. And on Sundays, he preached three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Monday through Thursday, he preached twice a day, every morning and every night. There were some nights he stayed up all night in prayer, regardless of whether he'd been up all night or not. He always got up at 4 o'clock in the morning for prayer and Bible reading. 
George Whitfield worked hard to bring about revival and to maintain the revival. There were 50,000 people who were converted through his preaching alone. That's the equivalent to 25 million people being converted through one person's ministry in America today. George Whitfield brought revival, he maintained revival, and he worked hard to do so. Another man who worked hard to bring about revival was Nehemiah. He lived in 444 B.C. And Nehemiah, like George Whitfield, had never heard that you couldn't work for revival. And so he poured out his life working to be used of God to bring about revival to his country. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're just going to look at his testimony as he works for a revival. But Nehemiah chapter 1, we begin with seeing that he worked for revival because he was concerned about the condition of his city. He was concerned about the condition of his country and the people who lived around him. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of Nehemiah, verse 2, when he says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And you see, Nehemiah is interested in what's taking place in his city. He's living in Persia, by the way, about 600 miles away. But his brother has come to visit him and he's asking him, well, what about our city? What about the people that live in Jerusalem? Tell me what's going on. He was interested. Are you? Nehemiah was interested, and because he was interested, he was informed about what was taking place. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so because he was interested, Nehemiah was informed that his city was in a process of disintegration. The walls had broken down. And you understand, in those days, a city without walls was considered no city at all because that was sort of her crown and glory. That was her security and protection. That was what established her as a city. And the walls had disintegrated, so she was sort of the laughingstock of the world, and it was worse than that. Not only was she in a state of disintegration, but she was in a state of disgrace because Jerusalem was associated with God's people. That was the capital of of the nation that was considered the children of God, God's people. So God's name was at stake. His testimony was all wrapped up in Jerusalem. And when her walls were broken down, the other countries of the world would look at her, like Egypt and Syria and some of these other places, and they'd look at Jerusalem and laugh and say, you know, you say your God is God, but our cities are in better condition than your cities, and our gods take better care of us than your God takes care of you. I mean, if your God is God, and that's the way he takes care of you, I don't want to know him. And the disintegration of the city had become a disgrace. And Nehemiah was deeply concerned about the brokenness in his city. What brokenness can you think of in your city? What brokenness are you aware of? Are you interested have you been informed about the brokenness in your city? And you know, because Jerusalem represented the people of God, I'm going to make this a little bit more specific. There are broken walls in our society and broken walls in our country, but I'm thinking in particular of the broken walls amongst God's people, the broken walls within the church, the broken walls amongst Christians, Christians who have broken marriages, Christians who have children who are in full-blown rebellion or on drugs or unmarried teenagers who are pregnant. Christians who 
are addicted to alcohol or drugs Christians the average person sitting in the pew on Sunday morning who cares more about what other people think than what God thinks more aware of the opinions of others than God's opinion people sitting in the pew on Sunday morning who are seeking their satisfaction in all the wells of the world seeking their satisfaction and pleasures and positions and prestige and politics and power and latest place to go and the invitation to receive and places to eat and things to wear and cars to drive and homes to live in and all caught up in the wells of the world seeking their security in a bank account or some sort of relationship or some sort of educational degree and this is within the church are you concerned about the brokenness amongst God's people the disintegration in the church has become a disgrace within the church the disintegration has become a disgrace do you care are you concerned Nehemiah was concerned about the brokenness in his city amongst God's people and the brokenness became a deep burden to Nehemiah and by the way the brokenness was 600 miles away from him and it wasn't his fault and he wasn't broken his life was fine he was living his life for the Lord Nehemiah was secure he was comfortable he was 600 miles away from all that trouble but the brokenness amongst God's people still gave him a deep burden you see just because it's at a distance from you where is it just across town across the tracks with people of a different color skin or people of a different educational background then you think it somehow doesn't concern you what distance is there between you and the brokenness in your city for Nehemiah, 600 miles, that's a lot of distance. But you know, it didn't keep him from having a burden. And the brokenness became a deep burden. And we see that in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. You see his burden? Wet eyes, bent knees, and a broken heart. Maybe those are the keys to revival. Wet eyes, bent knees, and a broken heart. Let me ask you, when have you wept over your city? When have you wept over the condition of God's people today? People who call themselves by God's name and they don't act like it. They don't live like it. And they hold God's name up for disgrace. Dragging his name through the mud by the way they're living their lives. Someone told me recently about a very well-known character who was claiming to be a Christian, and I said, well, I wish they wouldn't say they were. <laughs> if they're going to live like that, just keep it quiet. <laughs> when have you wept over people who call themselves Christians and behave any way but? When that person in Florida pulled out the gun and killed the doctor and said that they had told the person to receive Christ as Savior, and when he didn't, they shot him? That's enough to make you weep. And now the world just says all Christians are like that. And if Christians are like that, I don't want to be one. And God's name is at stake. Have you wept? Has your heart been broken? When have you prayed about the brokenness? When have you prayed? When have you prayed specifically for your church and for those in your church who call themselves by God's name but don't act like it.
Nehemiah wept and he mourned. His heart was broken and he prayed. His knees were bent. In fact, he fasted and prayed. You know, fasting means going not necessarily without food. Fasting means going without anything in order to make the time to get all alone with God and just pour out your heart before him. It means taking the phone off the hook, locking the door, going without eating, going without shopping, going without doing your housework, just doing without anything to make time to get alone and pray. Nehemiah prayed and he was asking God in essence to use him to do something about the brokenness. When have you prayed about the brokenness that has become a burden and how have you prayed? How do you pray for such a thing? You know, I don't think Nehemiah exactly knew how to pray. And this is encouraging to me because sometimes I see the brokenness within the church or amongst God's people or in our city and I don't know how to pray. But Nehemiah just got busy and he just prayed. And then in the end, in verse 11, he says, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Speaking of the king. You know what I think Nehemiah might have been asking? Lord, give me favor in the presence of this man so I can tell him what the problem is and he can do something about it. Like Moses, here am I, send Aaron. <laughs> you know, if I really pray about this, maybe God will raise up somebody who will do something about it. Wouldn't we love to do that and just say, Lord, I'll do the praying if you just raise up somebody else to do the work. And somebody once said, don't pray for something like this unless you're willing to be part of the answer. And so Nehemiah was praying, Lord, do something about it. Give me opportunity to say something to somebody else and let them do something about it. Grant me favor in the presence of this man. And so Nehemiah prayed. And it may be that we don't know exactly how to pray, but you just start praying and the Lord will lead you in prayer. And it might be a good place to start is, Lord, would you break my heart with the things that break your heart? Nehemiah cared and he got involved working for revival because he cared. The brokenness in his city had become a deep burden for him. Would you ask God? Would you dare to ask God to make it your burden also? Not only was he concerned, secondly, he was commissioned to work for revival. In other words, God was going to send him out to begin to work for revival, but that opportunity didn't come in any hurry. In fact, from chapter 1, verse 11, he says, Give your servant success today. And you know, the next week God still hadn't done it. And the next week God still hadn't done it. The next month God hadn't answered his prayer. Do you know, it was four months later that God answered his prayer and we have the events of chapter 2. And when you pray for your city or you pray for your church, you pray for the brokenness, you say, God... Please show me what I can do. Help me know something I can do. And he doesn't answer your prayer. Do you think, well, I guess he can't use me. Or I guess he hasn't heard me. Or maybe he's heard, but he just can't do anything through me. Maybe you feel relieved at that point. Well, see, Lord, I had a burden. I was willing, but you just haven't done anything. And God waited four months before he gave opportunity to Nehemiah to actually do something about what he'd been praying about. And I wonder why God waited for four months. And I've got to use my imagination a little bit, but it's based somewhat on my experience. I think one reason he waited four months was 
to test Nehemiah's sincerity. You know, you can come into a meeting like this, you can hear this challenge to go work for revival, get so excited and go charging out of here and you're ready to work for revival. But is it really a burden? And next week, will you still feel that burden? And the next week, will you still feel that burden? Maybe God waited four months to test Nehemiah's sincerity. Nehemiah, you said you wanted to work for revival. Do you mean it? How serious are you? Are you so serious that you're willing to wait four months before you get started? And not only was he possibly testing Nehemiah's sincerity, I think maybe he was also ensuring the king's receptivity to what Nehemiah would say. Maybe it took four months to prepare the king's heart so that the king, when he heard about what was burdening Nehemiah, the king was all ready to help Nehemiah get involved and do something about it. And sometimes we want to act just like this, but we don't think that there are other people involved and God has to take the time to prepare their hearts. Who is your king? Who is the Artaxerxes in your life? Is it your husband or your pastor or your employer? And when you leave this place and you're committed to work for revival, is it going to require the permission of someone else to allow you to do that work? You're going to have to have somebody support because you're somewhat under their authority? Then God's got to work in their hearts. And maybe that will be this afternoon. Maybe their hearts are already prepared, and I don't want to lessen your faith like that. But for Nehemiah in this case, maybe it took four months for God to hear Nehemiah's prayer and answer his prayer by working in the king's heart and bringing the king to the place that the king then would help Nehemiah work for revival. And maybe also not only that it was a test for Nehemiah's sincerity and it was to ensure the king's receptivity, but I wonder also if Nehemiah needed time to think through the practicalities of what it would mean to work for revival. In other words, once he made the commitment to work for revival, then did he have to think, now, if I could go back to Jerusalem, what would I do? What's the first thing I would do? And what would I need to take with me in order to do it? And whose help would I need to work with me? And for four months, I would imagine Nehemiah is just thinking through the whole thing. If I could go back, what would I do? And how would I do it? And when would I do it? And who would I need to do it with me? And, and I know he must have done that because when finally the king says, what do you want? Nehemiah, just like that, knows exactly what he wants. He knows just what he's going to need. He knows just how long it'll take. He's been thinking. And it may be God will delay the answer to your prayer and not give you an opportunity right away because he needs to prepare you practically to do the work. And you've got to be thinking through what's it going to take and who do I need to get involved with me and how much time will be involved. And do you see? So sometimes God doesn't answer our prayer right away, but, but it's not that he hasn't heard. It's just he's using that time in the meantime to prepare your heart and to prepare the king's heart and then maybe also to test how serious you are about what you've committed yourself to do. Sometimes when you offer yourself and you make yourself available and you mean it deep down, God takes that very seriously and he accepts your offer. You just may not have evidence of it for a while. But you get busy in the meantime, just assume by faith he has accepted your offer, and you get busy in the meantime and prepare yourself for the time when he does open the door and when he does call you into service. For Nehemiah, it was four months. The commission from God or the opportunity to work in revival was unhurried. And, and in my experience, God is just not in a hurry. <laughs> I want him to answer my prayer today. And God says, Anne, I'll answer your prayer 18 months from now. He's just not in a hurry, but his timing is perfect. And you can look back on it and you think, you know, I couldn't have done that one day sooner. 
and yet the timing was just so perfect. Let the Lord time it, but I can... And sometimes he moves quickly, but I can pretty much assure you that he may not move that quickly. He's very unhurried. So the commission came for Nehemiah unhurriedly. When it came, actually, four months later, it was unexpected. You would think after praying for four months, he would be expecting it to happen. But you know, after you've been praying every day for four months, you keep thinking, well, tomorrow maybe he'll answer my prayer. And you think, well, he'll do it tomorrow. He won't do it today because he didn't do it yesterday. So you're always looking forward to tomorrow, and you don't think that tomorrow has become today. And you don't really live in the expectation that today he'll open the door for me. Today I'll have that opportunity. Today all the pieces will fall into place. And Nehemiah was just going about his job. He was a cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer was someone who actually tasted the wine and tasted the food before the king ate it to make sure the king wasn't poisoned. So it was a job not everybody wanted. But actually um, it had a lot of prestige to it because the cupbearer to the king was also like the prime minister of the country. Because he had such close access to the king, he was the king's counselor, the king's advisor. He had the king's ear. The cupbearer was chosen for his looks because he was handsome, strong, had a wonderful personality, great sense of humor. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah knew, of course, one of the jobs of a cupbearer was always to be positive, always to be filled with personality and on the upbeat. And if he ever came into the king's presence with a long face or looking sad or like he had a burden, it could cost him his life. So the cupbearer's job was to keep the king happy and to keep him up and to give him advice and counsel and tell him funny stories from time to time and, and taste his food and taste his wine. And that was Nehemiah's job. So he was just going about his job. I mean, he did this every day. And when he got up this particular morning, there was nothing about this day that would make it seem any different than any other day. It was just a typical day. And he was going through his routine of responsibilities. It's just that for four months, he's been praying and fasting. And I expect he's been losing weight and he's gotten paler without realizing it. And you can't have a burden in your heart without it showing forth on your face. And so Nehemiah came into the presence of the king and the king noticed. What are your daily responsibilities? What do you do every day, most of the days of the week? Get up in the morning, fix breakfast, do something for your children to get them off to school or maybe they're already gone and then you get about your laundry, your housework or maybe you're getting them out the door so you can get out the door to your job and what's just your normal routine? We're not looking for handwriting on the wall or lightning flashing or a voice from heaven. We're just looking what we do in a normal day, just as we go about our routine. And Nehemiah was simply going about his routine when he has a conversation with the king. Verse 2, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid because Nehemiah knew it could cost him his life, his job, and his life was on the line. But he said to the king, may the king live forever. Why shouldn't my face look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And Nehemiah just comes right out and tells the king what is burdening his heart. And then here comes the commission or here comes the opportunity. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Can you believe it? <laughs> I mean, what he's been praying and fasting for for four months and it just plops right down. Nehemiah, what can I do for you? And then he had the open door. And you see Nehemiah, the way he took it, he said, Then I prayed to the God of heaven. He just quickly prayed. Now, he's been praying and fasting for four months. But you see his dependency upon the Lord. Lord, don't let me blow this. 
Lord, help me to express it to the king quickly and clearly. Let him see the burden on my heart. Lord, move in his heart that he would grant my request. Lord, help. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, give him a long vacation with pay. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back and work for revival and I want you to support me in it. I need your help, O king, to go and work for revival in my city. Did you see how the door opened just as he was going about his normal routine? He had prayed and prayed, and then the king said, Nehemiah, what can I do for you? You know, you're so afraid maybe to approach your husband or your pastor or your employer, and you pray and pray, and the Lord gives you that opportunity. It's amazing how easy it is when it comes. This has been Living in the Light. Please take advantage of all the free resources at angramlots.org to help and encourage you in your walk with God and in your study of His Word. Join us here each week for Living in the Light.